Hey everyone, welcome. This is Dan with the Spiritual Underground Podcast. Uh, coming to you through the medium of Zoom again today. Uh, see, but we was in a podcast studio last week, and uh, <clears throat> I've just met a wonderful bunch of people. Uh, my, as I say so often, that my my uh, support network, my friends in recovery. Uh, that cannot be deep or wide enough. And I just love to continue to stretch out my, uh, these webs to various places. And, and we've got on this app called Clubhouse and it's allowed me to get introduced to a lot of people that, you know, I, I'm relatively certain I would have never, ever met uh, or reach across the world with that thing. And, uh, and, and man, it just tickles me. It's, uh, I'm just, I continue to be fascinated by the number of ways and the different tools that I get to, uh, uh, use on this journey. Uh, you know, at one point in time, I would have never believed all this was possible, that these, these avenues were, were available to me to help me stay sober. Uh, you know, in the beginning, I felt so alone and uh, couldn't imagine that anybody felt like me. And, and now as that net spreads, I'm just finding that there's just, you know, there's uh, millions of people just like me. I don't have to be the terminally unique one anymore. And, uh, and today I've uh, invited some people out to the, well, first I've, I've thrown some invites out to Clubhouse people and uh, seeing if people would like to share their stories. And a uh, few people have uh, said yes, and that warms my heart. And today Karen is on the show. Uh, met her about the time, I think the time I walked right into Clubhouse. And to be honest with you, I don't know a great deal about her. I can hell tear, tell though when she shares in, uh, in the meetings and things that she has the kind of energy that attracts me. Um, uh, well, another thing I hear on clubhouses is a there's a little stigma somehow. Or another, some uh, maybe it's not a stigma, but there's always different levels of recovery, and you hear people who are really suffering through it. And something that always strikes me odd is when somebody has a little time under their belt and they're still really, um, still really not happy. And uh, and I feel sorry for those folks that that haven't been able to find what I've found. Uh, but I can hear in Karen's heart that she's found it because uh, uh, I can hear I can hear her laughing and smiling. And uh, matter of fact, when I first fired up the Zoom machine here, uh, she was laughing, and uh, I got all self conscious. <laughs> That's what are you laughing about? Uh, but I like that. So uh, welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited and grateful to be here with you. Yeah, I love this and little <laughs> medium of getting to know somebody better. You know, at the end of every one of these podcasts, I have somebody on that I don't know, and uh, and and I have a new friend when I walk away. Yes, I love that about um, I, one of my favorite things about uh, you know the the big book talks about how we are people who wouldn't normally mix. Right. Yep. <laughs> um, and then we come together from all walks of life, from all spiritual, you know, journeys from, from all different paths in terms of our struggle with addiction with one desire. And that is to lay down the drink or the drug, whatever it is that we're challenged with and, and find a new way of living. Um, and I think it's really cool. It is <laughs> I know really cool. we don't want to, we don't want to join that, you know, quote unquote anonymous group, but once we're there, uh, if we're lucky, we never want to leave. Right. Yeah, right. Right. And I particularly like that aspect of uh, of this thing where we all respect one another's uh, idea of a higher power or, you know, I know people that uh, claim none, you know, I'm not sure how that works because, uh, but you know, if it's working for them though, you know, uh, have at it. And that's, you know, that would have solved a lot of the world's problems if, uh, if the entire human population could allow everyone else their own conception of, of higher power. 
Mm. So it's a uh, uh, real Bill Wilson really struck on something there when he uh, allowed that in, because if we had to segregate up into religious beliefs, we wouldn't be near what we are. Yeah. Not near as powerful. Uh, what is your sobriety date? It is August 31st of 2005. Nice. I always have try to have to do the math in my head. So that'd be uh, 16 later on this year. 15. Yes. Now. Yeah, I'll be 16 in August. Yeah. yeah. My birthday month, my real belly button birthday month is August. Yeah. Nice. Cool. So uh, where did you grow up at? Where? Tell me a little bit about how your early oh. life was. And... Um, I was born in Norfolk, Virginia. My father was in the Navy, and um, but he'd been stationed in Scotland. So uh, <clears throat> I was born here in the U.S., and then we spent the first year of my life in Scotland. And then we came back, and my mom said to my father, I don't want to spend my life traveling and, you know, moving around constantly. So, you know, would you consider leaving the Navy? And he'd been in for 10 years and he thought, yeah, okay, I can do that. But he'd gone in in high school and become a welder on the ships. And it was really the only skill he had. So when he left, um, he, you know, had to take whatever job he was skilled for. And that was welding. So he joined uh, the Boilermakers Union welding on power plants. That's and off we, off we went. We moved. Wherever they were building a power plant. Yes, exactly. So we were always on the go. In fact, as a, as a young kid, we had um, a little travel trailer where the kitchen table is my bed, you know, that would roll over. Yep. And we pulled my dad's motorcycle off the back. And we drove that thing all over the all over the country, <laughs> living in KOA campgrounds and hooking up to water and electricity. <laughs> yeah, I uh, worked for a company. I was an engineer at a, a company that made heat recovery steam generators for the power industry. So I have a great deal of uh, respect and knowledge for uh, the amount of welding and and frankly the skill it takes to weld that particular stuff up. That's not just your ham and egg welding up a, a workbench type of well yeah yeah and when my dad would go to work every day he was on those steel girders high in the sky yeah <clears throat> and it was um you know one of those things where you didn't always know if he was coming home at the end of the day yep. yeah that is a dangerous job whether if you're high or low something uh uh things fall off of those buildings that uh, are off <laughs> of those structures that uh that, sure. that kill people yes yes so if you don't remember so, scotland probably right if you said no, I, in your life. Yeah, no, um, I, you know, I've, I've certainly seen pictures, old Polaroids from the seventies, but, um, I did have the chance to go back years later as a young person, um, and kind of tour around Scotland, but no, I didn't, you know, obviously I don't remember. I do think it's sort of ironic that my dad left the military to sort of have more of a stationary life and we ended up, moving, yeah, it didn't work out. And my mother, um, she was a, a surgical nurse. And so fortunately for my family, wherever we moved, she was able to find some kind of work because of her, her skill set. But I think in many ways, like our journey, we, we were always like, there was a lot of financial struggle for my family in our nomadic life. Um, and I think there are probably many times where <clears throat> I don't think I realized just how much we struggled financially, mm -hmm. but as a young person, it was definitely a bone of contention with my parents' <laughs> arguments over finances. And, you know, something I can definitely remember from my my childhood. 
yeah. as a topic of discussion. Yeah. Um, and my father was way too proud for help. So we wouldn't have ever sought out resources. My father was a, you know, a military veteran, uh, a proud man. Um, he'd been orphaned when he was young. So it was really important to him to, to be the, be the kind of, be a parent and a father and a, um, uh, a husband that he had an ideal in his mind because he didn't right. have to have what he he wanted his kids to have what he didn't have. Yeah, and so he 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 did, and part of I think part of that is so great and so challenging because for me growing up, um, you know, his stubbornness and his pride um, is is part of why I think for men, many years I didn't want to talk about struggling with addiction because, you know. I grew up believing that willpower could solve everything. Yeah. <laughs> Just roll your sleeves up. Like I can remember my dad telling me to roll my sleeves up and use a little elbow grease and clean in the dishes after supper. And so the answer to life's problems was roll your sleeves up and use elbow grease. Yeah. Um, that's and I love my favorite lines out of there. You know, I can rest <laughs> satisfaction and happiness if I yes. just manage well. Yes. And I love that about my dad because I learned resiliency and perseverance, but I also know that those lessons kept me from asking for help when, you know, maybe when, when I might've otherwise, yeah. you know, yep. the things we learn as we get to sift through our lives, when we do the 12 step work, we get to figure out <laughs> how those things shaped us. Right. Yep. Yep. And the pendulum swings both ways and almost all of this stuff, you know, that, 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 self-sufficiency and resiliency is a great thing in some corners, you know, but it can work against mm -hmm. you when the pendulum's over on the other side, when I'm standing over alone trying to do this and can't manage it. Absolutely. Yeah. sounds like your childhood was pretty good though. I mean, but you know, that had a, you know, yes. a, lot of, a lot of times that's a typical story. It's not always, but a lot of times people's rough childhoods is partly what, you know, is, is, uh, uh, they can hang some hook on why they're, you know, how right. I got here. Cause I'm in that boat too. I had a great parents. I really didn't, I can't, I can't set my alcoholism and addiction at my parents' feet. <laughs> yeah, I can't either. My, 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 um, my mother does struggle with the addiction, uh, uh, to food. Um, and so most of my life growing up, we were collectively on some sort of diet <laughs> <laughs> that she was trying. Um, and I don't think growing up, I knew that that was, you know, I had no idea that was an addiction. Um, but they didn't really drink. Like my dad was that guy who could, you know, pull a Michelob light out of the fridge, drink half of it, put that little stopper in the beer oh, bottle, yeah. put it back in the, you know, door. And I, you know, as a child, I didn't think anything of it. But right. later in life, when I became, you know, someone struggling with drugs and alcohol, it was like, I would reflect back on that and be like, how did he do that? Like, how did my mom have one glass of white Zin yeah. and call it an evening? <laughs> yeah. And I got my myself convinced that that wasn't, uh, you know, uh, wasn't a big deal that I couldn't do that. You know, I mean, I wouldn't look at the fact that somebody else couldn't do it because I didn't want to see that I was doing the other side of it. Uh, yeah. One thing I never did is count my drinks. I didn't yeah. Oh know no. How many? No. I had. Especially I had enough. Yeah. 
especially when you knew deep down inside it was probably way too many yeah 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 the thing about they should i always thought they should put like when you bought it it should be like a grab bag when you bought a box of beer where you really didn't know how many was in it that way because that way when the box was empty you know i don't know it is 14 16 who knows someplace (laughs) around there uh do you remember having your first drink oh yes of course um I was 15 and my girlfriend was sleeping over and we got this great idea that we would take. So my parents didn't really keep alcohol around like hardly any, but my mother, for some reason had a bottle of captain Morgan spice rum. Mm. I don't know if someone had given it to my parents and it was sort of a lone duck in the pantry. Like there wasn't other alcohol with it. She might've had like cooking Sherry. It was just kind of sitting there all on its own. And my girlfriend and I were, you know, convinced that we should try it. So, um, so we drank this Captain Morgan Spice Rum. We didn't really know anything about drinking because, um, you know, I'd never seen my parents mix drinks or make cocktails or talk about it. So we wouldn't have put anything with it because we didn't know, you know, mm-hmm. to. So we just took drink the cap it. off and drank it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You'd think that would be enough to stop somebody almost, you know, it makes my belly turn even just to think oh, about it, you know, cause I do today recoil from it. Like the hot flame. I really, oh, do. I hear somebody yes. it's like, Oh my. And yeah. Drinking straight rum as a, yep. drink. we were so sick and throwing. I mean, first we were giggly and it was funny and it was fun. And, and then we were, you know, throwing up and sick and, heaving and uh, just a collective mess in the bathroom, like holding each other's hair. It was so disgusting. Um, And, um, you know, the, the, the next day was just a hangover from just the most abysmal hangover, which I don't even think I knew what hangover was. I just, I knew like, I didn't think I was ever going to drink. And I said to myself, I don't think I'm ever going to do that again. But what ended up happening is I just didn't ever drink that particular alcohol again. <laughs> so I never did in all my years of drinking drink Captain Morgan Spice Rum again. Just if anyone was near me with a glass and I smelled it, I like, I like, uh, yeah. But yeah. I had no problem pounding vodka or tequila or other alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think that shocks up to the cutting, baffling, powerful end of it too. You know how you can repel from one, but uh, but not the rest. And I know I did go through some times where I had a particularly bad night on a particular drink, and I wouldn't drink that again for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I remember not liking tequila for quite for quite some time. <laughs> I tequila was as a young as a young person. God, when I really when I really started drinking from the very, like from the very beginning, it was like that night. I, I never, I never went out with friends, like friends would have a kegger, you know, where they would all collect, you know, somewhere outside and build a bonfire kind of thing. And I just was never someone who could go to those events. Um, And even just, like hang out socially. Like I, I always knew the minute I showed up and had like one drink, I'd get that warm, fuzzy feeling. And it was like the big book talks about off to the races. I would, I would drink until I was stopped by a blackout or 
you know, people forcing me to take me home or, you know, I just had no stop button whatsoever. So every time I drank, it was a, a it was like, it ended in total craziness, you yeah. know, hanging out a car window in the backseat puking or in a blackout. It was just, it was. <laughs> and so my drinking in those early years, like the first, um, from the time I was about 15 until maybe I was like 19 or 20 looks like a roller coaster of just, you know, blackout is my car in the driveway. Like, where was I last night? Did we really go all the way to Wyoming? Like, you know, like, um, and then I, I met drugs and when you put those two together, it just, I was addicted to more, more, yeah. more, 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 more. Yeah. And so those years look like, um, they were crazy. Um, I crashed a total of seven cars during those years. I had two DUIs before I was 19. I um, had a couple times my parents put me in a, um, in a psychiatric institution for teenagers whose parents don't know what to do about what they're doing. Um, uh, you know, and at the time when they started talking to doctors to try to figure out what was going on with me, um, you know, I was also struggling with like unbelievable insecurity, feelings of depression, sometimes suicidal thoughts. Um, you know, my whole life was inside upside down. And so they didn't know, does, does our daughter have a mental illness? Like what, you know, I would overdose. My parents would be sitting up by the phone, like worried if I was coming home or not, or if they were going to get a call from the police or the hospital. At one point I had, a, I, I ended up in a coma for a week and they thought I was going to die. Another time I had a heart attack and died. Golly. So, And it was like, and this is the insanity of this addiction. Cause I can remember, I, you know, sitting in my parents' living room on their couch crying and my dad going, why, <laughs> why are you doing this to us? And I just, and I would reach out into the, you know, atmosphere looking for that answer that would explain why am I doing this? And because, you know, I had been a straight A student and, you know, all the chores were always done and how can I help you mom and dad and take care of my sister? And I always showed up, you know, um, the right way or the way they wanted uh, and, and I could not for the life of me figure out why I was making these choices. And I tried so hard to not make those choices. And I just felt utterly compelled. Um, and I would, it was almost like watching myself in a movie in some teenage, you know, tr tragic movie. I'd be mm -hmm. like, I could see myself doing the thing I didn't want to do. And I had no ability to stop my behavior which is why I think, you know, the universe was trying to stop me in all these different ways, but I didn't hear the message. Yeah. Um, consequences over and over oh, again, but still not able to quit. No, I could, I just, I don't, yeah, it was crazy. Um, by the time I was, I want to say maybe 2021 20, gets a little fuzzy for me, but somewhere in those mm -hmm. couple of years, um, I ended up, I ended up asking my mother to help me because my, my struggle with drugs had gotten so bad. I, I had lost all handle on it and I was, I was, what were you using? Cocaine. Yeah. Cocaine well, and tequila. I like things a, that kept me drinking. 
you know, I didn't, I didn't, I like I, sometime long ago, I quit smoking pot because it would put me down, you know, and that wasn't yeah. what I was aiming at. I wanted to keep going. Exactly. Yeah. And in the midst of all that, I, you know, I was still, I was still doing school. Like I was swimming on the swim team. I mm-hmm. was running track. Like I, you know, I was doing all these things I was supposed to do. They weren't, sometimes they weren't pretty. And I was beginning to not show up for things or, you know, skip out on things. But in my struggle to try to live this like dual life. <laughs> yeah. Um, it all. Yeah. Um, so uh, so my mom, my mom and dad ended up putting me in a detox and I didn't honestly even remember that until years later when I finally, finally got sober and I had a conversation with her and she, you know, brought me back to that. Mm. And it was early when I was in sobriety and I was going to all these AA meetings and she would go with me sometimes. And then she's like, you know, when you were 19 or 20, you went to detox. Um, and I was like, really? And she's like, yeah. Uh, and then she told me this story. I'd been there a few days until insurance said I was cured. <clears throat> and they said, you know, take, take her to an AA meeting. So my mom did. And we went to this meeting and sitting in the room. I don't remember who was in the room, but I do remember my mom turning to me and, and saying, well, you're not like these people. And mm-hmm. it could have been that they were older than me. You know, I, I don't know what, what her judgment was based on. But that was all I needed to hear. My mom tell me (laughs) I don't have this problem. You're right, mom. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Especially because I was like, I'm just turning 21. I am technically legally now allowed to do what I've been doing for like five years. (laughs) So yeah, let's go. (laughs) I was court ordered to some meetings when I, because I too had two DUIs before I was 19. And uh oh, wow. and sent me to uh to court order DUI to get out of the you know diversion programs to get out of the trouble. Mm. And, and and I can just barely remember it. I know where one of them is. I still live in the hometown I grew up in and uh and and they're still holding AA meetings in that same very building. And I had a a, a girl I knew her older brother said, Yeah, I know where an AA meeting is, I'll take you. And he took me. And what I truly remember, I remember old men, cigarette smoke, and coffee. That's oh, I'm sure time, it was, you know, and it was back in those days, you know, would have been in the middle eighties, maybe 83 to 85, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I can, I still remember the smoke hanging in the room, like in a <laughs> bar, you know, where there was a third yeah. and where there was some layer of smoke. And, uh, and I was certain I was dead certain that I was not like anybody in that room. <laughs> I was oh, just yeah. a card signed. Cause I had to go to three AA meetings to get out of my trouble. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that I was required to go the more than one, but that one was it. And then I promptly forgot it because I went right back to, you know, drinking and drugging. Yeah, Around we got that beer time, on the way home that day. Oh, the, the sure. older brother bought <laughs> beer on the way home. We left there and he uh, went to the liquor store and we got some beer and went back. And yeah, because that makes sense, right? Yep, because yep, I didn't have a problem. Right. You no, know, I just got caught. Hey, what I had a problem doing was not, you know, getting caught. <laughs> getting not, caught. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Well, about that time, I met, uh, I met a boy um, and got into a relationship. And he drank and drugged like I did. And, um, and so that made perfect sense to me, because that was the other thing, you know, we learn about this when we go through recovery, but 
I was very good about making sure I surrounded myself with people that either drank and drug as much as me or more so that I could be sure that I was fine. Right. Yep. <laughs> you know, we didn't want to hang around with people who weren't um, like spiraling like we were because they would be judging us. And what do they know about our lives, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. A barrel full of reasons for doing that, you know, I mean, because obviously if you want to do what they're doing and then that's where the dope was too, you know, so you had to stay in the crowds where it was at, you know, my yes. other set of friends over here that were my athletic friends who weren't doing anything wrong. They were no good to hang out with because you couldn't right. do anything over there in their neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, it's funny later, my sponsor would explain to me that two stickies don't make a welly. <laughs> <laughs> that's but that's what we were. We were two sickies. And um, it was a very dysfunctional, broken relationship. There was domestic violence in that relationship. And, um, and it was just, and we were two broken people. So uh, this I've also learned in recovery that when you are, you know, when you're broken, you attract broken people. And as you start to get better in recovery, the people that you attract in your life are healthier happier. Um, so that's even more why we have to work towards that. So we can be surrounded by people who are doing that in their lives as well. As long as I stayed sick, I was always going to be attracting sick people. Um, so he and I did what, what two sick people do. We got married <laughs> because that <laughs> makes sense. It. Yep. Yes, it will. Um, you know, so we got married and we embarked on a journey of um, a 14 relationship, 14 year relationship that was a very unhealthy place to live. And um, I think part of that, too, for me is, you know, when the big book talks about the ways we make changes to try to avoid uh, surrendering and 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 acknowledging our, you know, whatever our addiction or struggle is. So we, you know, we move, we change our friends, we buy different alcohol, <laughs> like we do these things in our lives that allow us to say, I don't have a problem. Yep. Um, you know, and of course, later, uh, you know, I would learn that everything that I did to change that I brought me with it. <laughs> so it was a so common I was, denominator. I was always bringing the problem with me. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I attempted to do, I think, to avoid, you know, really acknowledging that I had a problem was to stop that like five years of insanity, car crashes, like, you know, binge drinking, overdosing and and trade my my cocaine and my tequila for more respectable drugs and alcohol. So I switched to prescription pills and, you know, martinis and wine. Mm. And, um, and then I, I spent the next 14 years really doing my best to control my addiction. So like working really hard to go drink before dinner and go to dinner and not drink too much at dinner so that I look like everybody else in the room. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to show up for the things I was supposed to be showing up for so I could look successful. Yeah. And sadly, in that family, I had great role models for that, uh, you know, um, dysfunctional behavior, because there was a lot of addiction and alcoholism within that family, and they were very successful. So I, you know, changed my role models. 
And I did what they did so I could live that life. And I had a lot of success and I went to school and achieved a lot of things. And my relationship got worse and my addiction got worse. Um, It was like, I took pills every day, all day. And then I pain medication. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then I, and things to sleep and things to level my mood and things to calm my nerves. And unfortunately, in the environment we were living in, there was no shortage of access to that. Um, And, you know, uh, myself, my husband, other family members were involved in that sort of cycle of, you know, addictive behavior. So, uh, you know, it was another one of those circumstances where I could tell myself it wasn't abnormal. What I'm doing is not wrong. Look at my role models. They're doing it, too. We're fine. and I, I wanted those justifications. I was making them for myself. And I also allowed the things that I saw in others who, you know, were behaving equally as, as dysfunctional to justify that for me too. And so instead I did other things to help me figure out why I was so broken. I went to therapy. Yep. I saw, I saw, I saw someone at one point for a time who did acupuncture I went and visited a holistic doctor who talked to me about drinking shakes and reading self-help books. And I did all these things to cure all the parts of me that were broken, but I did not stop drinking or drugging. And I didn't tell any of those people I was paying my own money to help me that I was drinking or drugging. So it was like, here's my $250 for the hour. Can you tell me why I'm so broken? And also, I will not tell you that I'm drinking and drugging. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you the (laughs) truth about what I'm really doing. Because if you walked yes. in to, in where there's a lot, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the big book because so many things in there, even whatever, 80 years later, 85 years later, whatever it's been, um, still fall true, you know, and there's a line in there about the fact that, you know, we don't tell the doctors the truth. If you would walk in the no. doctor and say, look, here, I'm doing all this, they would say, okay, we have a problem, you know, and we can, this oh, is, right. you know, but no, we go in and we get, you know, they, they don't know what to do with this and they give us right. uh, anti-anxiety medicine, depression sure. medicine, and, and really just feed the same thing as what we're doing on our own, except for now I got a bigger potpourri of, yep. of chemicals surging through me. Yes. It's that, um, you know, in active addiction, we manipulate, we lie, you know, we do everything we can to protect our active disease. And um, it's like, it's so exhausting to live that double life, because there's this part of you deep down inside that no, I mean, I knew Mm -hmm. there was something wrong. And I knew what I was doing was not how I wanted to live life. But I also didn't want to tell anybody because I didn't want anybody to stop me. It's like, I wanted help. But don't take away my solution because my solution is drugs and alcohol. Can you fix all this other stuff in my life except my solution? Yeah, that's so, usually the way newcomers come in, in my experience. Essentially, they've got this big giant pile of problems over here they want solved. Right. You know, and, and I say, okay, well, we're going to solve this problem, you know, and we're going to leave all that. We're going to put a tourniquet on all that and just keep it from blowing up, you know. Right. But, <laughs> But oh, otherwise, we're going to come over here and fix this. And it doesn't make any sense to them how, you know, but 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 the lawyer, the wife, yeah, the, you know, right. look at all these problems over here I have, you know, why are you talking about this? And uh, the magic is, is that, you know, I do this work and that pile of problems seem to fix itself. I didn't even have to do anything. Isn't that amazing? But to talk yeah. to a person, a new person, it's a little like broken record almost. It's like, okay, here we go again. Uh 
and you know and i just have to keep you just kind of keep backing up and saying you'll follow me this way come follow me this way just real slow and uh, eventually you know that i have yet to have the magic not happen for somebody that actually did the work uh yeah in my experience like right now it's pretty much a a, a bat in 1000 do the work practice the principles in your life and your life gets better period by the time i finally showed up i so at the so at the end um was there a tipping point a particular yeah and i mean over the years i knew so little things happened um and the universe just kind of allowed me to keep moving forward. Like there was, I remember at one point in part of my addiction. Um, so a family member was the prescribing doctor for the medications I took. That's convenient. Right. And, um, and so that also created this great enablement. So, uh, you know, and this person was also a person I saw as a person of authority um, and, and someone, you know, who I also convinced knows what's better for me. So if this person says I should be doing this, well, then of course I should be doing this, even though there's a part of me that knows I shouldn't be doing this, but they said so, and they're a doctor. Why should I question their expertise? Um, and at one point I remember, uh, a pharmacy having a challenge was filling a particular prescription for me. And I was like, all right, this is it. I am done. Like, I'm going to get some help now. The jig is up. <laughs> and the doctor said, oh, well, we'll just switch your medication. And it, and, and it got switched at that point from hydrocodones that I was taking to Oxycontin. Um, and when I got on Oxycontin, that became a whole new level of challenge with my addiction because <clears throat> then I was taking Oxycontin and hydrocodone and I was taking Ambien to sleep and I was taking, you know, Valium to level off and all these other things to deal with my nervousness. And, you know, every, everything had a prescription answer for it. Yep. And I went on like that for a few years and That's madness. I allow, I mean, you know, I have some ownership in that. I, sure. I wanted to be, numb to the things that I, I mean, cause like I said, I was in this marriage that was <laughs> abusive and painful and, um, and, you know, some of my, be, my, my behaviors in that were, you know, giving that person the silent treatment, resenting them, but not telling them why, <laughs> you know, like feeling angry and, um, you know, being just passive aggressive, like the worst behaviors I could ever be as a human being came out in that relationship. And I inflicted that person with all of them rather than, than, than understand how to walk away. It was just so it was, there was codependency and addiction and, you know, um, domestic violence and dysfunctionality and, you know, power dynamics. It was just, it was bananas. Um, so I went on like that for quite some time. And then I ended up getting pregnant with my oldest and, and, and when, when I found out I was pregnant with him, I, I had this, like, um, I was so overwhelmed by this idea that, um, my life was so out of control 
and I couldn't choose and I didn't want to be the chooser for this person. So I, I managed by the grace of God to not, not drink or drug in that pregnancy. Wow. Um, and even in the, in the breastfeeding, you know, when he was first born, but I went right back when, you know, when I was done with that, it was like the minute I felt like I had done what, you know, what was expected of me. Um, I had to go back to, to escaping from my feelings. And I really struggled those first few years of his life because he was my everything. You know, he, I, I escaped in him from my marriage and from the things that were too much for me to handle. I poured all of my heart in, you know, into my mothering of him. And when he was about three, I tried to leave. <clears throat> and when I left, I didn't have a, a network. I didn't have resources. I didn't have money. You know, I didn't have ownership over those things. Um, I got a dingy little apartment with barely any money I could scrape together. I hired a lawyer out of the phone book for $300. And I'm like, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and I stopped taking drugs and alcohol. Um, but I didn't have... I didn't know about AA and I definitely didn't know about resources. And, and so I, I think if there was ever like a point where I was a dry drunk, just hanging on by my fingernails, that was it. Cause I, I was all alone. I was overwhelmed. Um, I wanted so much to give Zach something different and I didn't know how to do that. So I hung out as long as I could, which is about nine months. Um, and then I was, and then I started to do this thing where I'm like, am I doing the right thing? Is this the best thing for him? Like, you know, we're, we're, we're living off of cheese bread and, you know, um, donations and we're struggling. And, but if I go back to that family, you know, we, you know, there's all this. And, and so I crawled back and I knew the minute I did, I made a mistake. Um, in retrospect, if I knew about things like A, I probably could have done it with that network. Because later when I would finally leave for real and end up in poverty with now three kids, I survived that same circumstance. But I did that through the power of connection to others yeah. and, and the step work. So I went back. I got pregnant because that's how it works. This time with twins. Oh. <laughs> um, and in my absence, uh, our family provider of, of medications got in trouble mm. um, and couldn't prescribe anymore to family. And my husband discovered how to buy drugs off the internet. <laughs> and so we moved back in together and all these packages were showing up from FedEx and, and DHL and UPS with, you know, hydrocodones in them, like hundreds oh, of pills. Man. And I was like, is this legal? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't, you know, I had nine months of no drugs or alcohol in my body. I'm like, am I going to give that away? But he looked so happy because he was medicated and yeah. I was miserable. I was miserable because I went back. I was miserable because nothing changed in our relationship. As soon as I was back, the, oh, you know, it's going to be great and I'll be nice and all that, like poof, you know? Um, and I just thought, I'm like, I want to be happy. Like he is like, why does, why does sure. he get to feel good? <laughs> um, 
So as soon as the twins, well, actually before the twins were born, I signed up online. Um, he showed me how to do it. I started getting, you know, prescriptions delivered too. And I, I stored them all. I stored them all in my closet. You stored that, them. Yes. Okay. So that when, the, when the twins were born, you were stocking up. I see. I would have a Christmas collection of prescription pills to take. That takes a great deal of willpower to not use under those circumstances, especially when it's there at your fingertips. Well, you know, it's funny. Like in the big book, they talk about the different types of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. um, and I always think of, you know, the story in the big book um, um, about the guy who works through his drinks early and then works through his whole career. Yep. Shows up for his family, the retires, <laughs> retires, sits in his barco lounger, puts his feet up, yep, you know, yep, starts yep. drinking, and then he dies. <laughs> yep, right. Yeah, I think um, he's simply called the man of 30. Yeah. <laughs> I think is a man of 30. Uh, yeah, what boy, means? that 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 right right at my fingertips, because I just, uh, man, I don't know that. But I think there's also a motherly instinct and stuff that was probably kicking pretty hard and, you know, that you didn't want to put it in you because you didn't want to. Yeah. Do that. So that's a mighty powerful force. It's in itself. I think of that as a gift of the grace of God, because if it's myself, I, I had no, I mean, like people in the, those early years when it was really bad, people would tell me you're dying, you're going to die. You're killing yourself. And I'd be like, Okay, cool. But somehow this idea that, you know, there was somebody who I would be choosing for, I don't somehow that I didn't want to hurt, like, I didn't want to hurt anybody in my addiction. I just didn't know how not to. And, but I did want to hurt me. I was convinced I deserved it. I mean, this, the unfortunate part is, while we may be well-intentioned in that end up hurting everyone around us, even though we don't want to or think we are. We think we're just hurting ourselves. Right, right. Yep. I'm not hurting anybody um, but me. Exactly. Um, so after the twins were born, I did, I did, and and this is where I where I would later understand what the progression of disease meant. Because before I had them, um, you know, and had gone back on these like drugs and it or be before, when I had stopped taking the drugs and then had them and went back on the drugs, I had been taking upwards of 60 10 milligram tablets of hydrocodone a day and Oxycontins to boot, like several hundred milligrams. Like you feel like that would kill an ant, like a large elephant. Um, and then I didn't take any for a long time, right? And then I had these babies, I breastfed, and then that was done. So I, you know, I started taking the pills again. And it started with like a couple for like a day or two. And within a week, I was at 20 a day. And I mean, it was literally within a couple of weeks I was. And the worst part is I had so many that they, they felt like they were unlimited. Right. Yeah. I could pop them like sweet tarts and stick them in the diaper bag and put them in the glove compartment of the car and have them in my bedroom. And, you know, because there were so many until... Yeah. That's amazing. I have a little bit of like a, I don't, it's, it's a similar to the FOMO thing, the fear of missing out. I have a certain little thing because those were my favorites too. Yeah. And, uh, and think to think like, how come I didn't find that? <laughs> uh, and uh, it's a good thing I didn't, right. but, the, but the disease in there, that, that guy that still lives. In oh yeah. 
Uh, he's going, golly, how did you, man, I've been able to figure that out. I played such games with myself though. Like I would lock them in our safe, which I of course had the key to, which is so ridiculous. You know, I would stick them in the glove compartment of the car and then go inside to try to go to bed and be like, well, if they're in the car, I'm not going to go out to the car in the night in my pajamas. But of course I'd be out with a flashlight in the car in my pajamas. And you know, my, my husband was doing the same thing at the time. So we were hiding them from each other, stealing them from each other, like searching couch cushions to see if someone had dropped, dropped one. one. It was like, it was so, it was so dysfunctional. Um, yeah, I thought it was a little bit interesting to me that whenever you, you know, he said, okay, well, uh, I'll show you how to do it. You're not going to get any of mine. Uh, well, yes, exactly. Own right. Of course. Yes, of course. And we did, we, we got our own supplies. Um, God, and that was so expensive that bankrupted us because, you know, you can't file that through insurance. You're buying it up the internet. You're paying for your doctor consult. You're paying for the meds. You know, that could be a $400 day, the day you meet the doctor and order them. It was so definitely totally not legal, (laughs) but you convince yourself that you're meeting over the phone with some doctor in Florida. So they said they were a doctor. How can this not be legal? You wouldn't. It's coming from a pharmacy. Yeah, I yeah I, I justified all that. Um, so Florida was where all that came from. Florida, Colorado, pharmacies across the country. At that time, that industry was blowing up. Right, right before um, the crackdown. Yeah, and it was bad. And you could, I mean, this is like the craziness and insanity of addiction. Um, you could join message boards online and get into community forums where people could help let you know how to not get blacklisted by doctor and which pharmacies, you know, definitely sent the good stuff. And because if you were a doctor, if you had a lot of doctors you were seeing over the course of a month, you couldn't end up on a list where they knew you were seeing other doctors. So I managed all that in a spreadsheet for us uh-huh. so that we didn't get in trouble. Um, it was super, it's super insane, but I mean, you know, when you're in active addiction, you'll go to any length, you'll drive in a blizzard to a liquor store, yep. you'll, you know, camp out at the crack of dawn waiting for them to open. I mean, nothing will stop us from pursuing that, which, you know, our body is obsessively craving. Our mind is, you know, obsessively craving. We'll go to any length to get that thing, yep. whatever yep. it is. Yep. Yep. We will do crazy things to continue to feed it. Yeah. Um, so it, it, what ended up happening during that period is um, after the twins are born, my mom came to stay with us for a brief period of time. And when she was there, I saw my life for the first time through her eyes. <clears throat> and I think part of me was tired enough that I was ready to acknowledge that, uh, you know, I was, I was running out of time. Like I'd been doing it for so long. I, I didn't, I just didn't, I didn't even have the energy to do my life anymore. And I, I was, I was pursuing a doctoral degree. You know, I had Zach, I had, you know, I was trying to manage a house. I had these, you know, newborns um, and she showed up and, I saw my relationship through her eyes. I saw what I was experiencing in terms of domestic violence through her eyes. I saw my addiction through her eyes, you know, like in my behaviors, like 
us sneaking down to the basement to, you know, to, to pop pills or, you know, do drug. My husband at that time was doing cocaine, you know, like in a secret corner of the basement. Like it was just such a mess. Yeah. And if you're in it yourself, it's like you're, it's like you're in this tunnel and you can't see anything in front of you. And then my mom showed up and I was able to get some distance. Um, and, and when she left a few months later, I was like, Oh my God, what are we doing? You know, like we would run out of pills and go through withdrawal. And of course we'd have all these conversations about how we were going to go to rehab and we're going to get sober. And this is really bad. And, you know, we were going through terrible detox, shaking, sweating, feeling sick, and then pills would show up and we'd take a few and be like, we're fine. Okay now. Yep. No problem. Do you have a problem? I don't have a problem. This isn't a problem, is it? <laughs> so it was, it went on like that, like a vicious cycle. And on my birthday, um, of that year, I, um, it was February 23rd. I, 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 I think I got it in my head. Um, and we'd had a particularly bad fight and, um, I don't, I got it in my head that, you know, if I, if I wasn't there, everybody would be better off. Like my kids would be better off. Who would he fight with? you know, it'd be better for everybody. And so, um, you know, in a very, very selfish, but just desperate act, I tried to kill myself Mm -hmm. and I took a bunch of pills. Um, I drank a bunch of alcohol. I drove my car across the street, put a hose (laughs) from the exhaust. I cut the garden hose and put it in the exhaust and put it in the car. And I drove down a ravine in the dark in the middle of the night. And I'm like, this is it, God. And I'd done this before in my years of drinking and drugging. I, I, I remember once like overdosing in a hotel room and putting the do not disturb sign up for the maid. And then someone just coming in my room anyway. And the, you know, the maid service finding me and, um, and, and getting me sent to the hospital and saving my life. Like that happened a lot. My kids joke that I have like nine lives cause I'm forever coming back from death. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I said to God that night, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm just going to throw like everything, <laughs> including the kitchen sink at this yeah, one. Yeah. yeah, I dare you. Um, and then an off-duty police officer driving down our road, which was kind of in a sort of rural area, saw something that caught his attention. He drove down in the ravine. He found my car. He called uh, um, an ambulance. They took me to the hospital and um, saved my life. And this, the staff there said, you know, cause they were trying to figure out if they need to put me on a psych hold or what. And they were like, do you, you know, did you want to die? Like, is, was that your intention? Or are you suicidal? And I was like, no, actually I, I, I need all this stuff out of me. I don't want any more drugs and alcohol. I don't want to do this anymore. So um, they put me through detox for a couple of days and um, and my husband came to pick me up because he was alone with the boys uh, and it was too much for him. And so he asked them to check me out and they did. Um, they gave me Clonopan for my blood pressure to help with the withdrawal. We stopped at the pharmacy at the grocery store, but they were closed. And he was like, well, I can give you some hydros to get you through when the pharmacy opens. And I was like, 
oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, so we got home and, you know, once I took those, I obviously didn't go back and fill, you know, right, fill yeah, the, the yeah. detox vents. but I didn't drink again. I never drank after that day, um, but I could not stop taking pills. And I went on like that for six more months. And in that that period, I actually wrote to that show intervention. Mm. I'm like, hey, <laughs> if you come help my husband, <laughs> you could help me too, maybe. <laughs> they never called. They never wrote back. Um, but I think I was starting to like reach out around me now to ask for help. I was just trying to figure out who I could ask. And then the final straw came, uh, you know, in August and we got in a, he hurt me and, and I, I lost, I, I, I lost myself in a rage <clears throat> that came up from the depths of, I have no idea where, and I wanted to kill him. And I, I was fortunate enough just for a second to like, it's almost like thinking through the drink in that moment, thinking through if that happens, what's next? What about my kids? And I ran out and I sat outside in the cold dark on the porch, just like afraid to go in. And I don't know if I prayed because I don't know if I knew that was a thing, but I was asking like the universe of something like to just help me figure out what to do and in the morning um the universe answered and said call your mom and ask for help mm. so i did and uh <laughs> she's like thank god i've been waiting for this call for like a million years <laughs> um and so i took took the boys and um it was just we I talked with him about going to rehab, but he didn't want to go and he didn't want us to tell his parents. Um, and so we decided I would, you know, I could do I would go do whatever I wanted to do. So I took the boys and I left and I and I came home to Colorado. And ironically, I went to the same detox that I'd been in years before. Oh, really? But I didn't know at the time. And, uh, during that week, um, they brought an AA meeting in and I heard, a the, there was a minister as part of the group and he brought in this meeting and he said, you know, only one in 35 of you is going to make it. And I was like, all right, well, I don't know about you people. That's me. Oh, <laughs> wow. so, I'm it. <laughs> Pick me. What do I need to do? And I don't, I have, I cannot tell you what in that moment, um, you know, was, was the turning point other than uh, I just was so exhausted. Yeah. I just didn't have the mental, physical, or emotional ability to do it another day. Yeah. I was the proverbial sick and tired of being yeah. sick and tired. Yeah, that was it. And it's funny. <laughs> There was a girl in, in the detox who I'd been to junior high with and I, I hadn't remembered her, but she remembered me and she came up to me and, you know, we, we connected. We're all excited. She had twins like me. We're like, oh, my God, we're going to be best friends. Yeah. In sobriety. Um, and we both checked out on the same day and I went home to my parents' couch. They were watching my boys for me. My twins were like 11 months old and Zach was about four. Um. 
And I was so sick. You know, my hair hurt, my eyes hurt, my skin hurt. I was nauseous. I had all this withdrawal happening. And she called my parents' house and she was at a motel and she was partying and, you know, doing drugs. And she's like, come on down, get a cab. It's going to be awesome. And I was like, are you crazy? We just went through six days of like puking, vomiting, like detox. Yeah. Um, and I told her to lose my number. And that to me was like a miracle too. Mm. Cause it, you know, any other time in my life, I would have been like, yeah, like I'm on my way, you know? I hung up the phone and I said to my dad, you know, I said, dad, they told me in that detox to go to a meeting and they gave me this book and there's a meeting here in this book. It's today, this afternoon. Can you take me to that meeting? And he was like, all right. And he drove me over there. Um, It was at a club called Vitality here in Denver. And it was up this rickety flight of stairs, smelled like smoke. The carpet was disgusting. It was a small room. There were a bunch of women in there. And they were all laughing and, you know, hugging and they were uber like friendly with each other. And I kind of slunk in and found a chair in the corner um, and I cried. I sat there and cried and, you know, I could just, I felt so raw. I felt like somebody had taken a Brillo pad to my whole, my whole inside and outside. And um, at the end they said, you know, come back come back. It's going to be okay. <laughs> and I, you know, <laughs> I, I went down the stairs to my dad's car and I got in the passenger seat and I was crying. And he's like, he's like, how was it? And I'm like, it was awful daddy. And I'm shaking my head and he's like, are you going to go back? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> I'm my head, no, but saying yes. Um, and so uh, he drove me again to a couple meetings and there had been a woman, Kathy Joe, who was in that first meeting. And I, um, you know, I heard people say, you got to get a sponsor. I saw the 12 steps and the 12 traditions on the wall and the serenity prayer and, you know, think, 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 and all these signs that said all these sayings that I was like, what does that mean? And um, <laughs> we had, we had one side of the room with no smoking. <laughs> Oh, really? one, one side of the room was smoking, <laughs> which the whole room was smoking. I yeah. mean, really, <laughs> and really bad coffee um, and literature everywhere. And I went up to this woman, Kathy Joe, and I said, um, will you be my sponsor? I'm, I, they told me I have to get a sponsor. And she said, well, call me every day for a week first, and then we'll see. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, I went home and I told my mom, I'm this lady said, I have to call her. And my mom's like, well, you better call her. Like, I don't know. You know, like it felt so awkward and uncomfortable, but I did. Yes. She would talk to me for a minute. We would hang up. She'd say, call me tomorrow. And I'd be like, okay, but are you going to be my sponsor? And she'd be like, call me tomorrow. We did that every day for a week. And then after a week, she said, okay, now I'm going to come over to your house. I'm going to bring you something. I'll see you in a few minutes. And so she drove over and she brought me a big book. And we sat outside of my parents' patio, um, you know, and she gave me this big book. She had her big book. Um, you know, we had my my boys right there, like, you know, the twins with Cheerios and Zach with a coloring book. And she told me her story. <clears throat> and her story was amazing to me. She, 
you know, here I had all these college degrees. Um, I'd won like some awards, you know, like I'd had some success in my life. And she starts telling me how she dropped out of high school in ninth grade. And, you know, she didn't do drugs. She drank her, her struggle was with alcohol and her story was like so different than mine. Hmm. And, but what, what I remember about her telling me this story were some very key things. And I was in this huge fog and I still felt really sick. But what's, what managed to seep through that fog was her telling me, I've been sober for 26 years. I've never had a relapse. I heard that. I'm like, not drink for 26 years? What? Like, what? <laughs> exactly. And I heard her say, you don't ever have to feel this way again, ever. Yeah. I heard that. I heard that in a way that gave me goosebumps. Because that was the one thing I wanted, like for 19 years was to not feel like that again. And then I also heard her say that absolutely nothing in my life ever would be made better by drugs and alcohol ever again. And it was like, I, like, how does that work? <laughs> like, <Yeah>. what? <laughs> what, what, what does that even mean? You know, and I'm, I'm thinking about all the things in my life in that moment, like, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go through divorce and I don't have any money. And you know, all these things happened and wait, that's not going to get better. If I did, if I do drugs or drink, I definitely think that might get better. And she's like, Nope, Nope, Nope. Um, and so she left me with the book and she told me to start reading it. And that the next time we met, you know, that we would read it together. And it was like, you know, she would come over, we'd get the boys set up and um, she'd sit at my, my mom's dining room table, my mom and dad's dining room table with me and we'd read the big book together. And, you know, she told me to go to one or two meetings every day. So I went to two or three sometimes. Mm. I was going to IOP three times a week. And I, I definitely benefited in that first year because I, I didn't have to work because I was living in my parents' basement with my kids. So I could literally pour myself into my program. Yeah, I needed that for me. I don't know if I could have done it any other way because I needed a complete psychological rearrangement like the big yeah. book talks about. Mm -hmm. I was not okay. I, I was so, so broken and I, I needed someone. She was not my best friend. She was not my mother. She did not pretend to be like, um, you know, my mentor. She was a sponsor. She was old school AA. She was firm and she was kind, but she didn't put up with bullshit. Like, <laughs> um, you know, she, I remember the first time she's like, I'm going to need you to look at all these words in the big book and write them down in your notebook and define them for me. And we're going to talk about them next time. And I'd be like, know what these words mean i went to college <laughs> and she'd be like oh yeah really what does humility mean and i'm like well it's um i mean it's you know and she'd be like exactly <laughs> you go look it up in the dictionary write it in your notebook we'll talk about it next time um and i needed that i i realized later that god gave me somebody who who dropped out of high school um because she didn't give a crap about my education. Right, yep. It didn't matter. Not impressed by you. <laughs> no, not at all. And, um, you know, 
I love how the big book, you know, I would learn later, the big book talks about us, that educational variety, like, you know, it, it does, all those things don't matter. Like they didn't, you know, I still ended up here. So that's why God put her in my life. And that is so cool. I love, yeah. the, I love the universe does those pairings like that. Uh, oh a, yeah. A similar, but different story where uh, the, Exactly the, the old saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear thing and poof. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> when it was time to do my fourth step, I got this great idea that I was going to build it in a spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I brought, I brought it back to her and she's like, what is this shit? <laughs> like, it's my fourth step. She's like, no, it's not. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> You go back to your notebook, you write the columns out, you follow the instructions like the big book. And that's how you do it. We're not doing it any different way. That's how we do the step work. I was yeah. like, fine. And, you know, all of that was my, my, the addicts in me, the alcoholic in me trying to avoid looking at myself, yeah. you know, look yeah. like doing that fearless and moral inventory. So when I would go back to her and I'm like, how about this way? How about this way? <laughs> it was, it was the way, you know, that, you know, that we try to avoid digging deep and looking at ourselves. Yep. So when I was finally acknowledged that clearly Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson knew what they were doing when they designed it the way they did and did it the way it was designed, it was like, whoa, you know, like, I got better. I like took a deep look. Um, you know, I started to really understand, you know, the nature of my relationships and learn, you know, which would eventually lead to learning about character defects and all that good stuff. And of course the list of people that you need to make amends to, but like it, they're in order for a reason. Right. Yep. And they're designed the way they are for a reason because they get you better. <laughs> yeah. You know, yes, I, 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 I agree a hundred percent. There's so much wound up in that. It's the same uh -uh. thing. You know, we get in here and uh, people are worried about some step they're not on yet. You know, that's another one of those ones that can derail you and keep you distracted and, and keep you from moving forward. And uh, there really is some magic to it. And I do believe, I don't think you that, that simple process. I don't think that simple process could have been invented by a human. I know it's, it's divine, isn't it? It's way too simple and complex <clears throat> at the same time. And uh, I always like to, I've heard this from a speaker, you know, when I saw it on the wall, I thought it was, I thought those steps were designed to punish me. <laughs> that that's what the, you know, that's what they were, because when I read them, that's all I could think about that, you know, that's going to hurt me. And it's just the opposite. You know, there may be some pain or maybe some discomfort from looking at this stuff. Yes. But I always like to say, you know, I mean, it's, it's really relatively painless. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, you know, but, and, but the alcoholic in you and whatever that is, I know another guy that told me, and I really like this idea about this is that it's like a parasite that hijacks uh, another animal's operating system. You know, there's, mm, yeah. some, there's some examples of that in nature or a computer virus, you know, and, and I'm not running the show, although I like to think I am. I'm really not. That has yeah. got me and it's got the joystick called Dan saying, okay, you're going to go this <laughs> way. You're going to do this. And I think I'm doing it voluntarily, but I'm not. Right. But you're not. I know. I, I definitely... Um, because I was a scientist before. So early on, it was important to me to try to understand the disease of addiction. Oh yeah. Um, and, and learning that 
that we have a disease was really important for me because I really struggled with trying to reconcile my lack of willpower that my, my dad had wanted me to have <clears throat> and my la- and my loss of choice, you know, in active addiction, that loss of choice. I, I needed that. And the teaching in the, in the steps that helps you to understand the, you know, the obsession and the craving and that once you pick up the drink or the drug, it, it, it launches this whole snowball of things that, you know, once you're in it, (laughs) you lose the power of choice. And, um, you know, I loved learning that I have a spiritual malady and I have a physical malady. I needed to know those things to understand really one, I needed to know I wasn't a bad person that, that I, that I was broken, but still worthy. Um, because I had such self-hatred. I felt so humiliated. Um, I had you know, so much pain I carried in my heart for how I felt I had harmed my parents who loved me or even in that relationship, even though I experience, I'm a domestic violence survivor, you know, I am not a victim. Like I also made that relationship a terrible, messy, dysfunctional mess, you know, um, and that I needed to to learn how to get that better so that I could go forward and have healthy relationships with people. And as long as anyone in the world is having a relationship with me, if it's broken, I have a part in, in that, right? Like yeah. I need to fix me. Um, so the fact uh, is we can't fix anybody else either. That's no. a, a good line in the book. It says, you know, these problems of our own, are, are of yeah, our own, our own making, making. Because if it really was the husband or the wife or the job or, you know, right. all our lives. We can't change other people. You can't yeah. know that, you know, so I got a shot at maybe working on me though. <laughs> and, yes. Uh, always, I, that's, that's the best news in that book is that I'm the problem. I know. Yes. And that, that there's a solution and we can do something about it. I loved knowing that, um, that for the for for the first time in my life I could have power of choice and the power of choice was to you know take the book and the steps laid at my feet and you and and work them in my life like that was like okay there is an answer to what is wrong with me um my sponsor early on um like all the tools were really impactful. In fact, I remember I had about 30 days of sobriety and I'd been going to meetings every day, like two and three times a day. And I, I, I drove by a pharmacy here in Colorado and my brain was like, oh my God, Karen, you have refills there. Go get them now. And of course, I'm out of state. Like I don't have refills there, but my brain's telling me I do. And then all of a sudden I heard my brain chant the serenity prayer and my kids were in the back seat in their car seats. And I'm like, I didn't even know I knew the serenity prayer. But I've been hearing it in meetings, you know, yeah. two and three times a day, every day for 30 days. And I hear my brain saying it and I drive across the intersection. I get to the other side and I was so excited. I started crying. I pulled over the car and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like I did not go to that pharmacy. And I look back at my kids and I'm like, do you have any idea how big this is? <laughs> and they're looking at me, you know, they're babies. They're looking at me wide eyed like, what's wrong with mommy? Yeah, what is going like, on? I'm like, this is amazing because I had like, you know, I had a choice. Like somehow I had, you know, and, and I don't even, it was like, 
I chose something different. I realized I didn't actively in conscious awareness choose, but my brain who'd been choosing without my permission wrong every time, like chose right. And it was like, it was the first moment where I knew, I knew if it happened once, it could happen again. And I got home and I I called my sponsor. I was so excited. (laughs) She laughed at me. And she said to me that our thoughts lead to our actions and our actions lead to our habits and our habits lead to our character. And she said, this will help you redefine who you want to be and help you change your character. She, you know, associated that with that psychological rearrangement that we experience. Mm -hmm. And so every time she'd say to me, every time you feel a craving or you think you're overwhelmed, you call me and I'll have an answer for you. (laughs) So I would call her and she would say, go do the dishes. And I'd be like, what? How's it an answer? Like, what does that have to do with anything? I need the answer to all things. And she'd be like, go do the dishes, call me back. So I would go do the dishes. Sometimes it was fold the laundry. Like she would tell me all these ridiculous things to do. And later she said to me, I'm teaching you how to move a muscle, change a thought. And in the act of doing that, you're getting past the craving and you're choosing something different. Your thoughts are becoming thoughts about being sober. And it's changing your action. You didn't go get a drug. You didn't go get a drink. You did the dishes. And the more you keep doing the dishes, it's going to change your habits. And every time you think you crave something, you're going to do the dishes. You're not going to go get a drug or a drink. Yeah, and I mean, fantastic. like it became metaphorical dishes yeah. over time. But what ended up happening is I became a woman in recovery whose entire life was centered around doing actions that kept me sober. So my friends were sober. I had a sponsor. I went to meetings. I signed up, you know, for service work. I emptied ashtrays. I poured coffee. I did the literature. I joined the hospital and institutions committee. You know, wherever the old timers went, I followed them. If they did the meeting after the meeting in the coffee shop, I was sitting there with my kids. Um, and over time, I, you know, I got better and. And one thing I love about the step work is that the big book doesn't tell you, um, like it tells you what order to do them in. It doesn't tell you like what, it doesn't tell you there's a time frame. You don't have to, you know, take the test, you know, 60 days in. So I was ready. I was magically ready. (laughs) Every time I started a step, my life and everything that was happening and my, my insides were magically ready in the moment that we embarked on it. It's like, I remember the third step. My, my growing up, my parents were very faithful and, and very, um, um, very engaged in their relationship with God. They taught Sunday school. My dad was a Lutheran. My mom was a Methodist. Like God was a big part of our house. My mom's God was fun and sang songs. My dad's God was scary and told you you were bad. Um, and it was very confusing. <laughs> So when I started drinking and drugging, I, you know, I was like, there was no room in that relationship for God. So I'm like, you know, peace out, God, (laughs) but (laughs) I'm all set. (laughs) I don't need you anymore. And when I came to recovery, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't say that I struggled with the language around knowing I needed a God. I, it wasn't that so much as, as not knowing which God 
or or what he was he she it was supposed to look like. I love the chapter to the agnostics because it told me that in AA God could be like you were talking about at the beginning. It could be of your own choosing, in your own time, in your own way. And so she had me write a job description for God. Oh, wow. And, I, and she had me write a job description that would be like, she said to me, if God were to come fill this job description for you, what would it look like? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what would be his roles and responsibilities? What right. would you need in that relationship? And I wrote that out. And a big part of it was forgiveness. I, I wanted the God who showed up for my job description to forgive me because I didn't know how to forgive me. But maybe if he forgive, you know, forgives me, I could figure out how to forgive me. Um, And when I wrote that out and her and I talked about it, it was around the time, you know, that I was getting ready to do my third step. And I was so afraid at this idea because I'd heard all these people in meetings talk about how they turned their will over and took it back, turned it over, took it back. Right. Yep. And, (laughs) and so I was like, well, I kept saying to her, I'm like, what if I figure out who God is? And then I give him all this will. Um, and then, you know, and then I need it back. <laughs> she's like, she's like, it's all right. You just keep saying the third step prayer. You know, it's all going to come together at the right time. Everything should always say to me, everything happens in God's time, Karen. Yeah. <laughs> so I much say, great advice. Yeah. I would say to you, fortunate. <laughs> Yes, I did. I would say, I'm like, but when is that? Kathy Joe? when is that? Yeah. <laughs> when is God's time? I need to but, know. Yes, I did. I needed to know. But um, I was sitting on my parents' back deck and I, I was really struggling with, um, you know, trying to understand who and what. And I was, I saw the sunset over the Colorado mountains. Mm. And I'd been sober at that point for about, for months. And I'd also had this miraculous thing happen around that time where the world finally started to appear in color for me. It stopped being gray. Um, I started to feel better. The fog was clearing. Uh, you know, I didn't, I, I, I could feel the world and my being in it for the first time. I felt like a person and that happened. I was sitting on the deck, you know, seeing the sunset and I, I had this like moment where I was like, you know, do I need to know what God is actually the scientists in me had to know. And I'm like, but do I need to know that? Like, why don't I just trust that there's something there? You know, like I'd heard people telling me it, but I hadn't really made the connection of the letting go of it, of the just accepting of it. Right. And in that moment, I was like, what if, what if I, what if I allow myself to not need to know Yeah, and just be like, okay. And I was like, whoa, I'm going to go with that and see what happens. (laughs) And it just overwhelmed me with this feeling of, of, of like, this is what letting go is like sometimes in life, I don't get to know and that's okay. And I, I never could have understood that um, in addiction because I was such a control freak. I controlled everything in my life so that I could manage my life. Um, so I let go. And 
and we did the third step. And in that, I didn't want to be a give it to God, take it back, give it to God, take it back. So what I did for me, ironically, at that time, I was doing, um, you know, paperwork and contracts around getting, you know, uh, filing for divorce. Mm. And so I decided that my, my relationship with, with God and that third step was like a contract. Like I have to show up for my part of this contract (laughs) and I'm asking him for, for his, you know, his being in my life and his willingness to forgive me and walk with me in this journey. Um, So that's kind of his part of this contract. Right. Um, And so once I sign up for that, there's no taking it back. Like I've, we've made an agreement. And so as long as I'm showing up for my part, he will too. So it's not like a taking back. It's really up to me. I show up or I don't. Right. That's uh, when I go into a third step with a guy, I have him make a pact. Yes. Yes. And I do that. And I ask him, you know, I want to make a pact with me also that we're going to have a deal here. I'm going to help you walk through this stuff, but I need you to agree to some things. Yeah. And uh, and I need you to show up in that way. And, you know, and the same thing with this, turning your will and life over to God. One little thing is that is, is, you know, you first, it, first, you're going to let me in in the loop. You know, you're going to keep because yeah. you know I don't have no direct channel to God at the moment. Not really. You know, not when I can dial up on the thing. So uh, let's uh, let's let another human being in here and and you know the one thing you know we're going to stop making decisions on our own. We're going to start letting somebody else in my day to day choices that I make. I always show yeah. for the longest time if I was doing anything any more important than buying new underwear, I talked to my sponsor <laughs> about it. You know, uh, the smallest things, uh, and I do love that contract thing that, uh, that it is, you know, we joke around about how simple some of these processes are, how, you know, it's simple, but yet complex, you know, and, and that third step decision that I want to do, you know, at some level, it's just saying, okay, I'm going to do it some other way. You know, my way's not working. Right. Okay. I'll turn my wheel and life over to whatever this thing is that I can't yeah. get my fingers on. But right. okay, and there is there's a huge you know leap of faith that, that that's involved with that to say, uh, okay, and and you know the only reason I can make that leap of faith, the only reason I can do that, is because I see it working for you. Yes. Oh God. Because without that evidence there, because you know they told me to keep coming back, right? Right. Well, if I didn't see them when I came back. <laughs> oh, the, 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 the walk wouldn't match the talk and their friends yep. videos, not matching the audio. It's not, <laughs> and, yes. uh, but these people were doing that. And I saw those genuine smiles in the meetings that, you know, and I like, you know, you could pull that smile bullshit off for, a, you know, a time <laughs> or two, but you can't keep this up for good, you know, but they're this way all the time. Right. <laughs> and when they said, when they would say things like call me and when I'd call them, they seemed to be excited that I called them. You know, truly, really excited that I called them or if I'd see them someplace in town, they were excited to see you, you know, so all that this like was uh, putting glue in my come to believe my second step that I was coming to believe that this thing would work for me. So therefore I could do a third step and I was coming to believe because I came to believe it was actually that was what was making that was what was working in these people's lives. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that. Early when we were earlier, when we were talking, you talked about, you know, people who've been around for a long time and the ones who are happy. And then the ones who've been around for a long time and are not. And early in recovery, Kathy Jo said to me, 
to stick with the winners, to find people who had what I wanted and do what they did to get it. And so for me, it was finding those old timers who'd read the big book and who'd done the steps and who talked about using them in their lives, who genuinely like whose lives had been utterly transformed and not by material things, but by, by having, you could tell they had a calm about them. They, they had an ability to be present. They, they felt secure in their own skin. Like those were the things I wanted because early in recovery, the lights were on in their eyes. Yes. I was such a spaz when I got into AA, I was like all over the place, jittery, overly sensitive, uh, definitely insecure. I just, you know, I just couldn't sit still. And I, I, you know, people would talk about, I meditate every day for 15 years. And that was just totally unattainable to me. But if I sat next to an old timer and, and I was such a nerd, you know, they'd quote the big book and I'd be like flipping through. I'm like, what page is that on? <laughs> is it really in there? <laughs> and I would ask them after, um, you know, cause they, they talked about going through divorce and, and losing, you know, loved ones and going, getting through cancer and, you know, all these things, which just seemed utterly um, impossible to go through and, and stay, you know, and stay sober. And mm-hmm. they did, and they were so happy. Yeah. I, I remember um, early in sobriety, I heard someone say they were a grateful alcoholic. And, and I was like, I turned to Kathy Joe and I'm like, how's that even possible? And she said, it is. And, you know, um, it's, I laugh about it now because I, there was a point in time where I came to understand that I was too. And, and then, so now I always introduce myself that way to meeting and mm-hmm. <laughs> newcomers will be like, sometimes they're offended. They're like, why, why are you so grateful? Like, yeah, what is right. there to be grateful for? And I'm like, Oh my God, you have no idea. Keep coming and you'll see. Yeah, um, yep. And they're sitting over elbow and their sponsor yeah. going, I ain't buying it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I know it, you talk about, um, you know, seeing that in others. I, I remember, <clears throat> My dad was my hero. I loved him so much. And he's, he never did understand my struggle with addiction. Although, it, you know, it turns out my family tree, my, you know, family tree is riddled with, with people who struggle with addiction. My, my mother's sister died of it. My, you know, my, I had grandparents with it. Um, you know, it, it runs through my genetics. My parents, not so much, but definitely in, you know, within my family. So it wasn't a thing he understood. And early in recovery, I remember he said to me, I might've had about nine months at that time. He said, my God, you're my old Karen again. Hmm. You know, you're, you're happy. And, um, you know, you're, you're doing, you know, you're doing well and, and you're, you know, everything seems better. You don't have to go to those meetings anymore. Right. And I was like, Oh no, daddy. (laughs) Like if you are happy about what you're seeing, I have to go to those meetings for the rest of my life if I want to stay that Karen. And I knew that at that point, he didn't totally get it, but he, he was so proud of me and, you know, he would acknowledge my anniversaries um, and, and he would tell me how proud he was, uh, you know, of how I'd taken this, 
dysfunctional, mixed up, inside, outside, upside down life, a life where on my second DUI, I stood in a courtroom with him (laughs) and he had to be there with his daughter who he adored standing in front of a judge telling me I could choose jail or an ankle bracelet Mm -hmm. because I had a DUI. Like that girl um, grew up to be someone who, you know, became a meaningful contributing human being. And he was, he was so grateful for that, that, that I found that in A and I, his relationship in mine went through some, you know, learning. And a lot of that is due to the step work because, you know, there was some toxic shame in my life growing up through like, you know, the baggage that we have within our families, perfectionism Mm -hmm. and, you know, overachieving and, you know, the dynamic of his and my relationship with that whole willpower stuff. Um, But we got to talk about it in recovery. uh, And, and I got to learn what part was mine and what part was family stuff that I didn't need to own, but I needed to acknowledge and accept the ways in which my parents did the best they could you know, based on what they knew or at the time. Um, And on my 10th anniversary, um, my dad died. He died very suddenly of a a myocardial um, incident. And, um, and I got, I I was in Connecticut where I was living and I got the call from my, my sister and um, her and my mom were crying and upset and um, he was being rushed to the hospital and, I was kind of in shock. And then they called me back from the hospital and I talked to the doctors and I ended up taking care of all the arrangements for him. And, you know, and my boys and I came out for his service. I did his eulogy and my mom and my sister were kind of falling apart. So I really helped to be, you know, the person keeping us all together. And I got to write a beautiful letter to my father that I read to those, you know, who came for his service. And we had a um, a service at Fort Logan National Cemetery with the 21 gun salute. And they gave my mom a flag. And when I reflect on that, I, I got up the morning after that news before I made preparations to come to Colorado. And I went to a meeting and I, and I knew to do that. And I knew not to drink because this, this person who I so admired, who was an old timer in one of my meetings had lost his only son who'd committed suicide at 16. And he found his son in the middle of the night and he was supposed to chair a Sunday morning meeting and he showed up bereft and, and, and just crying Mm. and, and broken hearted. And he came in the room and he couldn't chair. And he said to everybody, here's where I'm at. Here's what happened. And, and we all surrounded him with love and light and, (laughs) And he didn't drink. Yeah. And when my dad died, I thought of David. And I knew that if David could get through that heartbreak, so could I. And I didn't have to drink. And my my mom got cancer and she almost passed away and then she recovered and she got cancer again. And I didn't drink. And whenever those things happen, I think of people like David. And I know there, like Kathy Joe told me, there is nothing that can be made better in my life if I drink or drug. 
I could have never written that beautiful eulogy for my father that he so deserved if I had gone out drinking, if I showed up numb on cocaine. And I definitely couldn't have held my mom together because after he passed, I brought her back to Connecticut and she lived on my couch for three months in a Mm -hmm. deep depression because they were married for 47 years and he was her person. And I got to be there for her while she figured that out. Um, You know, I, (laughs) I am so grateful to the step work um, and the recovery process, but also the amazing humans that come into AA that show me it's possible that loved me when I didn't know how to, Yeah, (laughs) you know, I do know. I do know. It is. That's why I keep casting my net out because I want more of that in my life. I don't, you know, I have to have it. It's a desire. I like the drugs or something used to be my desire for connection and people that are doing the same walk as I am and watching these heroic stories of people <laughs> life in a, in a healthy manner uh, keeps me here. And I can understand, uh, you know, I could give examples. I sit with these podcasts and have these guests that I don't ever know before, you know, and I hear, and I call them bell ringers because you'll <laughs> just bring my bell because it's so much, uh, a similar kind of thing. And, and, and I heard a guy talk about being on a motorcycle and his daughter was on the back and somebody rear ended his daughter died and he was uh, 15 years sober or something, you know, and he didn't drink, Yeah, you know, and not, not only did he not drink, he navigated that in a healthy manner. And to me, that's impossible. <laughs> impossible right. Yeah. Know? Uh, and, and, and I've had some things happen in my short amount of, uh, sobriety, which is uh, in January, I celebrated six years that feel surreal because I don't think I'm capable of doing what I just did. I call them miracles. Yeah. I have my, when things started happening for me and my recovery and my sponsor, you know, just like your, your, uh, your excitement over going past the pharmacy. <laughs> you know, that's a miracle. Yes, it is. It is. And he started, he had me start writing these things down. And now I have this rather large miracle list of bullet items because yeah. I'm capable of forgetting them. Yes. Because the next one happens yeah. and the next one happens. And I try to coach my people to do the same thing, no matter how, because a lot of people would think that passing by the pharmacy don't qualify as that. It does in my world. Sure. <laughs> And it's, it ends up being like a long-term gratitude list too. Uh, so whenever I am feeling maybe down over something or something is getting me, I can look through that list and see what this has done to me to date. Right. And help fortify my strength in continuing on through today, even though something tragic has just happened. And I didn't think, you know, uh, I've heard people talk about that, like kind of this daydream of if this ever happens to me, I'll drink again. <sighs> or if that ever happens to me. And uh, yeah. That is just so beautiful. You touched me big time with that story. <laughs> yeah, it. I I definitely. The other thing I really loved uh, um, <laughs> is realizing the promises and and because you know in sobriety we oftentimes get our lives back and we lose some things and we get some things back and and if we were to quantify what recovery means based on that, then it would be it would be illusory because you get them back, you lose them again. But the promises 
they're not a thing you get back and lose again. Like as they start to come true, they come true. Um, I remember for me that first time I realized I was experiencing, we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. And it was like the car situation. I, I was doing my, my, my ninth step amends and I was supposed to be making amends to my ex-husband. And, you know, that was a challenging relationship. We were so intimately connected in our addiction. And then we had all this, you know, this domestic violence and just all this craziness. Um, and even when I left, got sober and came back and we were first in Connecticut, the boys and I, we were all alone. We ended up in poverty. You know, we, we had to, as I was, you know, I had not quite a year of sobriety after living in my parents' basement. So we came back so I could go through divorce and we could, you know, start our lives over. And those were tough times. Um, you know, I had to rebuild my A connection out there. Oh, and, yeah. um, you know, I didn't have, I, I think in that first year, my tax return, I made 18 grand. Like we mm. were, things were tough. We almost lost our house. A lot of times we didn't have heat or food or electricity. And, you know, we were going through a very messy, public, contentious divorce. His family had a lot of money. There were all kinds of lawyers, courts, you know, sometimes he had supervised visitation. There was all this stuff going on that I was like, I'm going to go to a meeting. I'm going to go to a meeting. Come on, kids. We're going to a meeting. We're going to call my sponsor. We're going to pray. Like our, in a small way, we were in a bubble of I'm doing everything I learned in Colorado. And that's, what we're going to focus on all this other stuff is noise. I just can't it's so much. It is. Um, so I just, my sponsor would call me from Colorado and say, keep it simple. Just do what you need to do today. Mm-hmm. If you need to go on, you know, online and find a meeting and no one speaks English because you can't find a meeting near you, then do that. If you don't know what they're saying, it doesn't matter. Sit there with your big book and read it. Like just do what you need to do. So I did that as I was rebuilding my network out there and finding a new sponsor. And, um, so I'm getting near my ninth step and uh, <laughs> I'm supposed to make amends. And, you know, I call her and I'm like, I'm not ready for this. I can't do this. I can't face this. I can't face this in my life. I'm still mad. I don't make amends, but I need him to apologize to me. <laughs> She's like, that's not how amends work, kid. <laughs> so um, we ended up getting a flood in our basement. Our sump pump stopped working and these boxes got wet and I went down to clean them out and they were just in one corner of the basement. They turned out to be from our marriage, like paperwork and different things. I had to look through all this crap and throw it all away. And it was like, um, you know, I, I left the lights off in the basement. We didn't go down there. I would th- open the door and throw the laundry down and just run down every few days, grab the pile of Mount Washmore, stuff it in the washing machine and run back up. Like I didn't want to face all that crap that was left behind. So I had to sort through that stuff. And then um, another like few weeks went by and we had another flood in the basement you know, walls and it was a different part of the basement. New box, guess what's in them? Stuff from my marriage. 
And so in those two floods, uh, not only did I to clean up the stuff, look at the stuff, throw the stuff out, and then spend hours, you know, vacuum sucking up all the water and then think about all that stuff. Um, but that happened two times. And <clears throat> the third time, the third time, I sat down on the basement stairs and I was and I'm like, really God? Like what in the actual heck? Um, and I, I cleaned out those boxes and there were prescription pills in them that we, you know, one, one of us had obviously stuffed and there was, you know, paraphernalia from our addiction and the rest of the leftover things about our finances and, you know, mistakes and bankruptcy and all this stuff that I just didn't want to look at. And, um, and that was the end of like our marriage. And I threw that stuff out and I found the pills and I flushed them down the toilet and I called my sponsor and, and I was sitting there at the toilet flushing and I was like, holy shit, this is, you will intuitively know how to handle a situation which used to baffle you. Yes. I didn't take them. And I called her and I knew I was ready to make amends. I knew that I had cleared the wreckage and that I no longer needed him to apologize to me. It was about me getting better for me. Yeah. And so I approached him about it and uh, we met and he said, you know, I bought that big book to see why you were so fucked up. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, I hope you read it. It's a pretty good book. Um, but I made amends to him and he was very happy to hear me apologize for all my wrongdoings. <laughs> Um, and also very happy not to say anything whatsoever about his part in anything, mm -hmm. which was totally fine because mm -hmm. I knew now that cleaning your side of the street, um, isn't about that. It's about you getting better and moving forward. And so in doing that, um, I got to move forward and I learned that he was still sick and that I can't do anything about that for him, but I can do something about me. And he never did get better. Eventually he would lose all access to our children and um, it would take many years and many court battles and many trials. Um, and when I reflect back on that, I also know that I came to a point where I'm grateful for him too, because I learned um, that I got to find myself again and find my strength um, and find my ability to forgive me and others. And I learned to feel angry and let it go hmm. um, and not action that in an in a unhealthy way Yeah. and pray for him. I learned to pray for him mm -hmm. and he missed out on a lot with our guys. They, Zach is 21 now and my wow. twins are 16 and they are amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and they grew up in AA and he missed a lot and I can't do anything about that for him. They're okay. They are okay. And they did not growing up think they did not grow up thinking that they own any part of his disease or behavior. They grew up in AA. They grew up around people in recovery and they are okay in themselves. They are not in that toxic shame cycle. They are not afflicted with codependency. They do not own his addiction. And yeah. 
that is like that is an unbelievable gift. Yeah. Um, they're gonna be they're gonna be okay, you know. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. It is. <laughs> I just love it. It gives me the tingles, and that's this. This is exactly you know. I started this podcast to help get these stories out because you know you could listen to the circuit speakers online and that kind of stuff and the people who do this almost semi-professionally. Yeah. But we have such wonderful stories just among us, you know, just the regular garden variety alcoholics have these miracles happening for them too, not just the guys that get up on the stage and get recorded and put out into the world. Yeah. Uh, so I just, man, I am just tickled to death. I, uh, uh, cause I, I, I don't want to be like evangelistic, you know, that's not my point either, but I definitely want to bang a drum that says the solution is out there. And so many people, like you said, you know, either feel completely alone or the shame has got them so bad that they can't, they can't break through, you know? Right. And, uh, and I think, you know, we, we can't do enough to, uh, to, to bang this drum and, and, and yell from the mountaintop so that anybody who is suffering, might hear that small voice right uh coming down that there really is a solution to this thing and not only is there a solution the uh book book says this too but it says it in a different way uh if i had written a script for what i wanted in my life i'd have sold myself way short when i hit recovery (laughs) yes because i'm getting to enjoy things i could have never imagined there's no way i could have imagined i'd be sitting here doing a podcast there's no way i could uh, um Last night I did a fifth step with a guy. Uh, I have a cabin out in the country. Yeah. It's got no water, electricity. It's primitive and we go no cell phone service. And I take, <laughs> I take people down there in the afternoon beforehand, we go down there and do a fist. We eat dinner. I cook, I cook, built fire last night, cook a couple oh. steaks, fire, sweet potatoes, asparagus, and we have a good meal. And that sounds awesome. We sit down and do step five and then I go to bed and he does six and seven. Yeah. out there out and under the stars and i wake up with a different person than i drove down there with oh i watched that transformation beautiful. happen and uh and last night you know I, i've been to, i'm sober six years i've been sponsoring people five and last night was the 19th person i did a, a fist step with down there and i've done every single fist step down there and every single person that has done that with me to the best of my knowledge is still sober now and living better lives yeah. And, and to get to be a part of that, to be an instrument in the master's hand or, you know, uh, to, to be able to do the things that we're doing in recovery today. is just, it just is amazing. Those stories are powerful. My sponsor told me after I finished my step work, when it was time to be of service, she said to me, you may be <clears throat> the first big book that somebody meets out in the world. So you need to go out there, not, you know, not promote it, not sell it, but live your life as a woman with dignity and recovery, living the steps, Mm -hmm. living the lessons you've learned, living this life one day at a time, uh, you know, to the best of your ability. And the universe will send you the people you can help because you're a living example of the big book. And and she was right. God put in my life people to sponsor. God put in my life people who would, you know, find me if they were traveling and say, are you a friend of Bill? And I would say, yeah, where can I find a meeting? Like God put people in my path. Um, it's funny when I joined Clubhouse, <clears throat> you know, I've been, I've been a very, 
I've been a part of a very active for this whole 15 and a half years. And, um, you know, our meetings are typically anonymous, right? That's the universe we live in. And when I first joined Clubhouse, I was like, all right, this is not anonymous. It's not Mm -hmm. anonymous. Um, But I also had reached a point this past year with everything that had happened, you know, attending a meetings on Zoom um, and, and realizing that we're in a world now where, where, where we have to be able to find each other. And the world looks different than it did in the AA I got sober in. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about our meetings at Clubhouse is that we also acknowledge at this point in time, A is not the only way. No, right. it was the way for me. Yep. It's the only way I found. And that's what worked for right. me. But I love hearing the other avenues people have right. to get here. And in reality, in recovery to really be inclusive of each other, we have to understand as much as I can say to someone, these steps work for me. Here's how you can work them in your life. I also had to go to therapy. I had to do some other things to get better. So, um, you know, for some people they're, they're, you know, it's a, and this, or it's this. Um, and on clubhouse, I think I love the, the diversity with which, you know, we get, you talked about people from all over the world that we get to come together and we get to share our solution. We get to say a worked for me. If you want to try this, here's what I did. And I really appreciate that. But I also like to just be in a room of people who are really trying to find a solution. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what you and I found. Mm -hmm. And I want to tell people that worked for me. Um, And if you want that, I can show you what I did because that's what my sponsor did for me. Right. Um, And and hopefully that helps you get better. you know, and I'll be the best power of example of a big book I can be. But I also know sometimes it doesn't work for people. I've sponsored, mm-hmm. you know, women who couldn't stay sober. Mm-hmm. And I had to learn that that's not my fault. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, I'll part be of the real process. clear. Those 19 people were just who made it to a fifth step, right? Once I got oh, yeah. there, oh, right, I had right. plenty of people that never, that drop sure. off, that never, you know, that can't do the call me tomorrow, right? Yeah, call yeah, call. yeah. No phone call. I mean, that that's a testament to the power of this, you know, of this disease. Um, well, my road was I, bumpy too, you know, and I heard you tell yours, you know, you looked for every way, you know, that well, was working for you before you made it to the one that did, right? So yeah, yeah. I have these journeys, you know, and that path is just, you know, I, I have to give them grace that, you know, and, and not be judgmental that they're not ready. Although I understand the statement behind it. Uh, some people just frankly aren't there, you know, they haven't, the, their path has not led them to that yet. Yeah. You know, and by being a jerk, all I'm going to do is delay that. Yep. Right. Uh, I'm going to set up some kind of resentment to where either not going to come here. Cause that dude who was talking about AA was an asshole. Yeah. Uh, and, and so sometimes we have to show up and we have to go out and do more research before we come yeah. back. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that's how it goes. Yeah. And there's a little thing too, you know, like uh, it had to be my idea until as long as it was everybody <laughs> else's idea about what I was to do, it wasn't working. <laughs> now, when I finally decided that this was what I was going to do and it was my idea, yeah, then, you know, then I was ready, you know, uh, yep. <laughs> everybody else told me for, because uh, my first AB was in 2011. I got one year sober. Uh, out of the gates yeah and, and kind of worked the steps kind of 
And then I had a divorce and some things happened and I crashed and burned in the next three years. And I really, I I bounced off the walls and halls. I kept on trying to go by back to A. I couldn't stay sober. I kept on, and and like the book says, uh, it gets worse, never better. That's exactly what happened to me in those three years. And, uh, And I had to go through all that pain in order to be ready to do this to actually do the surrender move and say, okay, I'm going to throw up my arms. Uh, I don't know what to do. I love that word. You said something about needing the, the ability to not know. And you were talking about the higher power. That yeah. Everything in my life, right. To not have to know things today, you know, I can not. Yeah. Know. And so there was times in my life, I can remember walking around going, you know, saying over and over to myself, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I ended up breaking in houses and stealing pain pills. And I ended up getting, yeah. that was my bottom or, you know, that was the thing. Uh, yeah. That was the distance between that and my sobriety date is six months. So I still, even with those consequences, I couldn't stop drinking for six yeah. months. But, uh, and, and during that time of going to court and having some different things happen and saying that, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And today uh, I have, I know what to do today. I don't have to say that anymore. Even if the solution to that, I don't know what to do is simply call my sponsor. Yeah. That could be the smallest little thing. I don't have to walk around not knowing what to do anymore. I have a wonderful support group. I've got a whole bunch of people around me that will help me with whatever I don't know what to do. Yep. (laughs) And and then I've got a brilliant, awesome sponsor who's uh, may will celebrate 37 years. He spent 18 of that in the field of addiction and alcoholism recovery. And I really feel like I like sit at the foot of this master because he's got, I've been to his house a bunch and I haven't found his crystal ball yet, but I know (laughs) it's in there someplace. Yeah. Uh, And, and, and besides all that too, you know, my sponsor and I have developed this thing where we're best friends now. There's nobody closer in my entire life. And we are able to do that, uh, walk this thing completely together with no walls up. And man, just the, it's, it's an endless supply of, of wonderfulness in my life today. And, you know, you always had to put it out there that it ain't all, you know, right. it's not all, but the negative bias used to get me real bad because no matter how much positive happened to me, the negative stuff weighed more. Yes, absolutely. You know? And that, that scale has shifted today. You yeah. know, that the positive is what weighs what I feel in my heart today. The negative things are just things I just walk through and they don't carry yeah. anymore or they don't carry it for long. Right. Oh my God. I love that you said that. Like, like living life on life's terms means that some days suck. And mm-hmm. I, I can sit in that suck until it passes. Um, like I remember a couple of things you said really, uh, um, one of the things that my sponsor taught me early that I needed to hear was that I have feelings. I am not my feelings. Yeah. I needed someone to tell me that I am not those feelings. Cause when I thought I was those feelings, they lasted forever. Yeah. I'm depressed. It's for the rest of my life. <laughs> if I was having them, that meant there could be a point in time where they passed. Yep. And that like was clouds really- in the sky. Yes. That was really important for me to learn that lesson. And then also you made me think of something else too, which was learning that sometimes knowing what to do means doing nothing. Yep. That's an action. Yes. Sometimes making a decision is not making a decision yet. 
Like it just is waiting. Yep. yep. <laughs> that I mean, in in the active addiction, we don't wait. Like we're constantly have to fix, answer, lie, cover up, plan. You yep. know, manipulate. <laughs> yes. Everything that pops up has to have an immediate hammer. Yeah. And, uh, oh my God. But in recovery, sometimes you we just can pause. Yeah. You just <laughs> just gotta be in it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, because nothing ever comes up today that has to have a solution right now. I mean, I haven't, you know, I, well, not nothing, but very little needs a solution right this moment. Yeah. Everything can always stand me uh, thinking and getting good counsel about what to do. And um, uh, I have another beautiful thing in my life where we're uh, now here in Louisville, Kentucky. You may have heard me share this. So we're, we're handing these 12 step tools to people who don't fit in the traditional fellowships. So anybody who might want to, because I mean, I've been hearing forever since I've been here. I wish my husband had a program. I wish, you know, and all that talk, you know, and I almost visualize it like this. Like if I had a big book in one hand, I hold it by my back going, I wish everybody had this program. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we're doing that uh, today and I'm getting uh, some of the people in those 19 are people we call 12 step spiritual recovery people who are not, they're not substance abusers. They're just having a tough time in life. Now, usually they've got something going on, but they never turn to alcohol and dope. Right. Uh, and, and, and I watch these 12 step tools work to, to rearrange these people's lives too, you know, and I get to be a part of doing that also. So uh, helping just today, my life is wrapped up mostly in just trying to help other people recover at some That's level, beautiful. whatever it is that they're suffering from. Yeah. Um, and that meeting is at in, for uh 24 minutes from now i have okay. plenty of time and, uh, but i did want to uh, click on it because i don't put a time limit on these most time i make sure and don't put a wall up on the back side of it um you really can't tell much in an hour you know our stories are so much deeper than what an hour long and you know if you stand at the podium and talk there's 10 minutes of readings at the beginning of a meeting and 10 yeah. minutes of readings at the end of the meeting so you might have a half hour to share your story right. up needing to be just a truncated little part of it <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I like that this format I'm allowed, uh, my guests are allowed to feel pretty complete with their story. Uh, cause I, that's, you know, uh, I feel like that was a, a pretty complete story. I know it wasn't everything. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But, yeah. But it's not like a gaping holes of uh, no. what happened between here and there. No, I think the only thing I would end with is, um, you know, 15 and a half years is a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot has happened in like recovery and I know a, a lot of newcomers come in and we talked about how they want to like immediately fix things or get the car back, the girlfriend, boyfriend back, you know, fix relationships with their parents and make the boss happy, whatever that is that brought them in the door. And, um, you know, I've experienced all those transformations in my life. When I, when I left to go get sober, I was trying to get my PhD um, and I was working as a scientist and I had to leave um, when I was nearly at the end. And today I'm back in a PhD program again. And I went through a whole journey, like, you know, went back to school and got a master's and all this. And now I'm doing it again. This time I'll finish. I, um, you know, got through poverty and, you know, took seven different careers to find myself in a space where I feel like I have a career, Um, you know, but that changed. 
um, you know, I, I raised my boys, I bought a house, like I have like those material things that have happened over time. Um, you know, and those, those are the things that we get to get back and sometimes lose and get back again. And those changes happen when we keep showing up. And I'm really grateful for those. But in that is a person who finishes things. I'm a finisher of things. I show up for things and I finish things. When I tell you um, I can do something with you, I'm going to finish that yeah. thing I said I I'm going to do. Make my commitments and keep right. them. Yes. And, and so that when I, when I tell people I've had those material changes in my life, behind that is a person who pays her bills and shows up, you know, to be a worker bee among worker bees, uh, you know, or, um, you know, shows up as a, a, a person who can be accountable and responsible. So I'm a finisher of things. That's the like stuff. On the other side of the spectrum, I no longer hate myself. I, I now feel worthy of God's love and my own and any other love that someone in the world around me wants to give me. You know, I, uh, something I learned um, early on, I wrote this down. It's like so weathered and covered in coffee, but I kept awesome. it in my big yeah. book. And I really believe this. If we stick around and we keep showing up and we do that work, you know, we're rocketed into the fourth dimension. We have that psychological rearrangement. People in my life choose to love me. And receiving that is a gift. I can't take that for granted. I can accept that gift and I can honor them for offering their love to me. And the way that I honor them is by staying sober. Yeah. Yeah. That is how I honor that gift. Yeah. So all these years later, when people ask me, are you an alcoholic? You know, I don't say I'm recovered. I say I'm a grave alcoholic because it's a daily. I know some people say that and that's okay for me. I can't. For me, mm -hmm. it's a daily practice. It's one day at a time. I'm doing this as long as God gives me the gift of breath. You know, if yeah. I'm lucky when I pass like my dad, It'll be sober, um, but I have to keep doing this every day for for that. I have to, I have to work it, you know. Yep. And yep. I, I honor that love doing that. And so, the biggest transformational gift and why I'm grateful to be an alcoholic is because I know I'm an alcoholic. I know there's a solution, and I know how to be the person that I want to be. And I get to honor the people in my life who choose to love me by doing the work to stay that way. Yeah. 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 You, you tapped on a little note that I heard in, in a guy really early when I was doing that stumbling around, not staying sober. Uh, a guy was a little perturbed with my <laughs> willy nilly attitude about things. <laughs> and he simply told me and my listeners have heard this a hundred times and I close my podcast with it. What I do. Uh, he looked at me and he, and I believe he pointed his finger at me and he said, you know, Dan, the deal is you must participate in your own recovery. Yeah. And, and yes. that's such a simple little thing you know, is, an, is my anchor is my anchor today. It really is. You know, that's why I'm going to the TSSR meeting just a little bit. That's why I said, yeah. okay, everything I can do to participate in this recovery, because I found during that one year of sobriety, I set everything down. 
and I just stopped participating in my recovery. I thought I made it, you know, I got this. And, uh, and daily, you know, the book, all that says, you know, this, we only have a daily reprieve. I must keep doing this. And uh, another thing I say often is, is back in the day, if I kept doing what I was doing, I kept getting what I was getting. Oh, yes. And the same thing applies today. I keep yeah. doing what I'm doing and I keep getting what I'm getting. And that's this wonderful life being a useful, sober human being. Useful. Yes. I like being useful today. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I certainly wasn't. I mean, I wanted you to think I was. But yeah, the truth was, uh, I was, if, if you came in contact with me, uh, whether if you knew it or not, there was a negative impact I had on my bump of you bumping into me by accident or whatever happened. And today yeah. I can honestly say that if you bump into me today, uh, it's a positive impact today. Aww. I don't have to do that anymore. I like that, Dan. It, uh, it has been wonderful. I usually offer my guests, if they don't do it themselves, a concluding uh, statement. And it sounded like you just did it, but I'll offer it I again. I think so. Too. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Uh, I really appreciate I would, this. Yeah. I what? would just say get in the middle. <laughs> like, you know, get in the middle of AA. Don't sit on the side. Get in the middle. Get right smack dab in the middle and stay there. <laughs> Yep. Anchor down. No doubt. <laughs> I've heard a bunch of, I like my mind likes to work in analogies and I've heard people because there's so much of this simple wisdom that gets floated around in the rooms with, if you keep your ears open. Yes. Uh, so like if you're on a big flat roof and the wind is blowing or if, even if it ain't, if you stand in the middle of that big flat roof, it's almost impossible to blow you off the edge. <laughs> if you go walking around the edges of it and you hang yeah. around there and a big wind comes, <laughs> You're a daughter. Yep. And it's the same concept with uh stick, you know, <laughs> the herd if you're a gazelle and the cheetahs are chasing you. Yes. Uh, there's a bunch of analogies that fall for the same thing. So yeah, stay in the middle of AA. Get, yeah. get in it and uh and and get in the middle. I yep. like that a whole lot. Awesome. I well really thanks for thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah, it was really nice to spend this now, time with you. Yeah, and I really like this angle of like these people I know vaguely on Clubhouse. You know, I mean, I, we get to little intersections when we intersect each other in a meeting here and there. Yeah. And you hear a, a two minute something another off from this person and two minutes from that. But I actually am really excited because I like this. I got like I know you a lot better, you know, and that's what I want to do. I want to know you better. And I get this lovely opportunity that Higher Power gave me and this little tool over here. So I get <laughs> Cause I couldn't get you on the phone for two hours, but, uh, <laughs> but I can, t I can get you to come talk to me. Uh, I said some, some, uh, I picked a first perfect niche for a, uh, a podcast, uh, because alcoholics actually do love to talk about themselves. <laughs> and, there's, and there's almost an endless supply. Of yes. no, I'm not going to hang around some podcasting networking people, you know, that are always yeah. chief complaint is finding guests, finding guests, finding guests. And I have absolutely no problem finding guests. I'm sure. <laughs> I appreciate you. Uh, you know, yeah. that's what, when I walk away from this thing, it's like I, I have made a new friend and that's, that's just more miracles that, that come along with this thing and doing walking this path of recovery. Um, I, best of my knowledge, I get one trip on this big blue marble and, and <laughs> today, I'm, today I'm trying to make the most of it. Uh, one day at a time. Well, thank you for your service and thanks for having me be here with you. And um, 
I appreciate you. I appreciate you. And this won't be long because I don't get a lot of them in the can. I try to keep this timely. So uh, Sunday after next is, and I'll send you a link to it. Awesome. And I will close with two things that I close every single time with. And it's just, uh, I'm anchored down on that. And uh, the first thing is, is that if you're not having a blast in your recovery, it's your own damn fault. (laughs) And I just want to... Thank everybody uh, for allowing Karen and I to participate in our recoveries in this manner tonight. Peace out. Thank you.